Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It is my show and you are welcome to call in 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Good to have you guys with me. I hope you got better blue skies than where I'm, it's just gotten gross here. I guess it's going to rain today. I hope it's sunny where you are. I want to play for you a clip, um, and it's about a minute, minute, 15 seconds long. It is Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State of the United States. She was on The View, and they got into a conversation about critical race theory. And you need to listen to what Condoleezza Rice had to say. Let me be very clear. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't go to a movie theater or to a restaurant with my parents. I went to segregated schools till we moved to Denver. Mm -hmm. My parents never thought I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice, but they also told me that's somebody else's problem, not yours. You're going to overcome it and you are going to be anything you want to be. And that's the message that I think we ought to be sending to kids. One of the worries that I have about the way that we're, we're talking about race is that it either seems so big that somehow white people now have to feel guilty for everything that happened in the past. I, I mm -hmm. don't think that's very productive. Or black people have to feel disempowered by mm -hmm. race. I would like black kids to be completely empowered, to know that they are beautiful in their blackness, mm -hmm. but in order to do that, I don't have to make white kids feel bad for being white. So somehow this is a conversation that has gone in the wrong direction. Keep that last part. You don't have to watch. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of it in order for black kids who, quite frankly, for a long time, the way they were portrayed, the way their history was portrayed, mm -hmm. it was second-class citizenship. Of course. But I don't have to make white children feel bad about being white. Now, what's so interesting there is Joy Behar didn't quite seem to understand why white kids shouldn't be made to feel bad. I I find that interesting. Uh, but what Condoleezza Rice said is on the money. And I'm glad that she said it. Because these things are coming to a head now, and I, and I got to string together several stories here, beginning with that, because some people on the left were very unhappy about Condoleezza Rice. One of the things you need to know about critical race theory is that the people who are supporters of critical theory believe you cannot talk about critical theory unless you are an adherent and practitioner of critical theory. Critical theory itself derives from Marxism. That's not an understatement. It's not meant to be hysterical or overblown. It's actually the truth. Critical theory is a postmodern Marxist worldview about power. Critical theory aligns power along the lines of intersectionality, the attributes of individuals and the classes of individuals. Critical theory believes that the individual does not matter. that you are in a class of people and it is that class of people that matter. And if you act outside the class to which you belong, you are a problem because your class is supposed to 
operate in a certain way. Critical theory traces and tracks power and power dynamics. And it provides no path to racial reconciliation because there will always be oppressors and oppressed. Critical theory believes in this thing called intersectionality. As I mentioned, what is intersectionality? Intersectionality is you take people's attributes and you add them together. So you take their race, you take their sex. Nowadays, you take their their gender, which is different from sex for intersectionality's purpose, but for everybody else these days, you're not allowed to, to, to not blend them. It's kind of bizarre. So take your race, take your sex, take your gender, take your sexual orientation, take your faith, take your ableness, are you handicapped or not, and a number of other attributes. And those who are closest aligned to what critical theorists believe are are the oppressors are bad, those who are furthest away, have the moral right to speak. So critical theorists believe if you're white, male, cisgendered, that is your your gender and your sex align, so you're a uh, man who thinks he's a man, who is heterosexual, who is Christian, who is conservative without handicap, and from a two-parent nuclear household, heterosexual two-parent nuclear household, you are the most oppressive the furthest away from those things you are, the more you have a moral right to speak into society about power in society. So the most oppressed would be the furthest away from a white, heterosexual, cisgendered male from a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household uh, who is Christian and with no handicap. So what would it be? It would be a a non-white transgender Muslim handicapped orphan. And that person has the most clout in society to be able to speak because they're the most oppressed. And and critical theorists believe the more oppressed you are, the more you see clearly the power dynamics in society and have more moral authority to speak to them. So critical theory is actually opposed to free speech because if the white person can continue to speak, speech is power that causes harm, according to critical theorists, because you have to supposedly listen to the white person. And when the white person denies these things, the white person is doing harm. So there can be no free speech. What the white oppressive power structure does is they produce what's called the dominant discourse. And the way you end the white person's power is to subvert the dominant paradigm and the dominant discourse by elevating other voices. And those voices, regardless of what they say, must be treated as true and authentic because they are oppressed and therefore they see things more clearly. Now, what happens when the oppressed become the oppressor? Critical theorists have no ability 
to answer that question, they somehow the world heals. They have no answer for it because, again, this is a power structure. What happens when the oppressed becomes the oppressor? According to real theorists, that'll never happen. You can't be. It allows them to be authoritarians while denying it. Now, we see this coming to play in all sorts of crazy around the country, and it is having very bizarre results. It's uh, You should be concerned with the things we're seeing out there as the critical theorists try to engage and silence other people. An MIT professor, for example, or MIT rather, has decided to not allow a professor from the University of Chicago to speak on campus about climate change. He is a leading scientist on climate change. But he opposes affirmative action. And because he opposes affirmative action, he's not allowed to speak on campus at MIT because he's an oppressor. And by virtue of being the oppressor, he doesn't understand the harm he's doing to other people. And the way the story has been described in the New York Times is fundamentally bizarre, but it shows you the crazy town where we're going. A few fields, for example, according to the New York Times, have purged scientific terms and names seen by some as offensive. And they provide a, a, a link to some of the things that are changed. So, for example, noosing is a long-standing term used by herpetologists for catching lizards. But this might be triggering to black scientists, so they're insisting that it now be called lassoing. One scientific society is considering renaming a major journal that honors a renowned 19th century researcher because he held racist views. Another is considering changing the name of a trivia competition that canonized a prominent eugenicist. This reminds me at NASA, they're launching a new satellite. Uh, it's the, um, oh, what's the name of the, the, the Jim Webb satellite? Apparently Jim Webb back in the early 1980s, one of the things he was charged with doing was keeping uh, gay people out of certain departments of the government. At the time, there was this belief that if you were gay and you worked in certain divisions of the government, the Soviets could blackmail you and convert you into a spy very easily because you wanted to stay in the closet and they would out you unless you did it. And so there was an effort within government to keep uh, gay men from working in certain departments of the government. And Jim Webb was required to be one of the people who pushed them out of the job. And their he became a prominent NASA director who advanced a lot of research at NASA. They want to name a satellite after him. And now some uh, intersectional critical theorist believing employees have walked off the job because they refused to change the name of the satellite made in his honor because of his conduct in the 1980s, which had no bearing on his time as the director of NASA, mind you. Now, here's one of the most bizarre things, again, from this New York Times. Uh, there's a rising call for citational justice. 
professors and graduate students should seek to cite more black, Latino, Asian, and Native American scholars, and in some cases, refuse to acknowledge in footnotes the research of those who hold distasteful views. Now listen to this. Here's one of the parts that's going to blow your mind on this. Phoebe Cohen is a geoscience professor and department chair at Williams College and one of many who expressed anger on Twitter at MIT's decision to invite Dr. Abbott to speak, given that he's spoken against affirmative action. Again, he was going to speak on climate change. They're upset because of his views on affirmative action. Dr. Cohen agreed that Dr. Abbott's views reflect a broad current in American society. Ideally, she said, a university should not invite speakers who do not share its values on diversity and affirmative action. Nor was she enamored of MIT's offer to let him speak at a later date to MIT professors. Honestly, I don't know that I agree with that choice. To me, the professional consequences are extremely minimal. What, she was asked, of the effect on academic debate. Shouldn't the academy serve as a bastion of unfettered free speech? Listen to this. This is a quote from a university professor. The idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominated. This is a professor who did not want a man who's a leading authority on climate science to speak at a university on climate science because of his unrelated views on affirmative action. And she believes that the idea of intellectual debate and rigor, scientific rigor, are signs of white supremacy. This is where intersectionalism has gotten us. People who perpetually view themselves as victims. Condoleezza Rice, on The View, is coming under fire today from the left for saying that white kids should not be made to feel guilty about the past nor should black kids be raised to feel like they're victims of society. Some people want to be the victims. They have become the bullies, and they don't even know they're the oppressor now. They're the oppressor. But again, under critical theory, they can never be the oppressor, even as they're oppressing other people, which is one reason they like critical theory, because it gives them the power to hide behind an intellectually built lie so that they can oppress people who disagree with them while still claiming to be the victim because it is their victimhood that gives them power, which is why they can't get rid of the idea that they're victims. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425 and waiting patiently on hold is Larry. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show, Larry. Hey, how you doing today? Eric? Great. That's good to hear. Uh, I was just calling, you know, I was listening to you talking about that thing where we sent 500,000, I think it was, to China. There's a TV show called Forensic Files on Netflix. And if I'm not mistaken, it's in season nine or eight, one of the two, and it's got biotech. Bioattack. It's the first American or first bioattack on American soil. You need to watch that. You, you might see something. The other thing I wanted to talk to you is about the statues being taken down. And, you know, some statues are for people that have done great things for this country. Other statues are to remind us of things we did wrong. 
And, you know, if everybody would just take and, you know, suck it up and just, you know, treat each other fairly, we won't have no more problems. Yeah, look, let's just dwell on your last point, Larry. Yes, uh, thank you. Treat every, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is the golden rule. You know, so every religion on planet Earth has a version of the golden rule. Every religion does. Christianity is not unique in that respect. Uh, What sets it apart is the phrasing that Jesus gave to it. Uh, The others, all of the others, are don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus said, affirmatively, do to others what you want them to do to you. So you're supposed to go do affirmatively things to other people you would like them to do to or for you. Be nice to people. You know, there's this... There's this idea now circulating among some people on the right that you shouldn't do that. There's this idea cropping up on the right that we're, we're going to impose our way through government on the left because that's what the government wants to do to us. Now, I will tell you uh, that that is a flawed way of thinking because there are more of them than there are of us. But part of the component of there is that we need to be nasty to the other side because they're nasty to us. But how can I, as someone of faith, reconcile my faith to that? Now, if 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 I'm not of faith, it becomes very easy. If I'm not a person of faith, I can just say, "Yeah, I'm 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 not going to be a nice guy. I'm going to be nasty to them. I'm going to be as mean and cruel to them as they are to me." But I'm told to do to other people what I want them to do to me. It doesn't matter whether they do it or not. I'm still to do those things to them because I'm to love my neighbor. There are no caveats, carve-outs, exceptions, or anything for, well, they disagree with me. They hate my politics. I hate their politics, what have you. I'm still supposed to be a good neighbor. And I, I cannot go along with the idea that conservatives should, this post-Christian right that, that's forming, that we should be nasty to the other side, that we should screw them and we should smash their houses and, and burn down their stores and the like because that's what they do. Not, I, I can't go along with that. I, I'm morally constrained in a way someone who's not a Christian might not be. Hi there. It's Eric Erickson. Delighted to have you with me. Really am. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-973-7425. I have avoided in this program thus far today talking raw politics. But things are really bad out there if you're a Democrat. We probably do need to delve into this story. Uh, Things are actually bad for the Democrats. Uh, and I want those of you who are Republicans uh, cheering this on, uh, as I've been doing, to know that events can change things. Um, but now there's a CNBC poll out of 800 Americans. And Joe Biden's approval is at 41%. And Selzer has him at 37%. Quinnipiac at 40%. The outlier appears to be Fox News which had him at 46%. 
Quinnipiac, which leans to the left, has him at 40. Selzer has him at 37. CNBC has him at 41%. Um, It's not looking good. But forget all of that. What about the Democrats' own data? What does it show? Chuck Schumer has a super PAC. And it has provided a private presentation. It has leaked. Let me lead you, read you some of this from Politico. In a private presentation to allies this week, Senate Democrats' main super PAC offered ominous warnings about the political climate the party faces. President Joe Biden's numbers across Senate battlegrounds have eroded dramatically in recent months, according to a summary of the poll for the Senate Majority PAC, the group aligned with Chuck Schumer. Making matters worse, Biden is struggling with so-called persuadable voters, those who are on the fence but could be convinced to vote Democrat. Despite the millions of jobs added and the growth in the GDP under Biden, a majority of voters, 53%, say the economy has gotten worse, while just 30% of voters say it's improved, the poll shows. Perhaps more troubling for Biden and Democrats who are trying to maintain the razor-thin Senate majority in 2022 is the pessimistic view of the persuadable camp. Just 18% of those voters say the economy is getting better. The Senate majority pack shows Biden's approval rating across the Senate battlegrounds at 41%, 52% disapprove. Numbers that are roughly in line with recent national polls. Among persuadable targets, however, only 27% approve of the president. 57% disapprove. The group's private poll from May had Biden well above water with 49 approve, 43 disapprove. Few Senate races in the modern political era tilt against how voters view the president. So if Biden is underwater headed into the election year, holding a 50-50 Senate will prove to be a tough proposition for Democrats. The poll was conducted in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Georgia, and Nevada. Notice we haven't seen a lot of polling here in Georgia about Raphael Warnock. Gives Republicans a little more confidence on Herschel Walker. They had been concerned, but if Biden is polling that badly, Walker can walk into office. This is the Democrats' own polling in the battlegrounds. But wait, it gets worse. This is from 538. Over his first nine months in office, President Biden has lost support among Americans of all stripes, men and women, black voters, white voters, Zoomers and baby boomers. Even Democrats writ large are more disenchanted, but two groups with whom Biden has lost support stand out. Two groups. Independent voters and... Hispanic voters. Independents have soured on Biden to the extent his approval ratings among this group approach the strongly negative ratings of President Trump. Independent voters, Biden and Trump poll about the same with independent voters. 
while increased disapproval of Biden among Hispanics could signal they're moving further away from the Democrats after they shifted toward Trump in the GOP last November. Of course, it's not that unusual for a president's approval rating to drop over the course of the first nine months in office. A president's honeymoon period has ended. Opposition to the president's agenda coalesces and the new administration sparks criticism. Biden, Trump, and Barack Obama all experienced clear dissents during their first nine months in office. Biden has fallen from the mid-50s to the mid-40s, Obama from the mid to high 60s to the low 50s, and Trump fell from the mid-40s to the high 30s. But Clinton and George W. Bush didn't really follow that pattern. Clinton's approval rating did decline a few months, but Clinton's approval rating trickled back up. Bush's ratings didn't change much until it skyrocketed after September 11th, rally of the flag effect, and it held. But we're in a highly polarized trend right now. A highly polarized environment. This is a brutal realization for the Democrats. The Democrats had thought they could just blame Trump for everything. And in so blaming Trump, they could get away with much. They can't. It's not happening. And now they're losing Hispanic voters. And by the way, can I just say one of the reasons they're losing Hispanic voters is because they don't know how to talk to them anymore. And this gets me back to critical theory. Democrats, when they engage with Hispanic voters, Latino voters, well, they do so differently from Republicans. So I was on a it showed up last night at my radio station. There was a show going on called Word on the Street. Uh, great folks. They asked me to come in and talk for a minute, and they were talking about Republicans in Georgia have opened uh, essentially opportunity centers, one catering towards the black community, one catering towards the, the Asian community, and essentially they're community centers. Kids can come in, do their homework and the like. They're, they're there. They're explicitly branded as, as Republican. They're trying to make inroads. The, the downside, of course, as you and I both know, is the Republicans will shut them down after the election, which is the biggest criticism the black community has of the GOP. You show up before the election, want our vote, and the moment the election's over, they're like, all right, see y'all, we're out of here until the next election. It's horrible. The Republican Party keeps losing black voters because Republicans make clear, hi there, the election is coming up and we want your vote and we'll leave you alone the moment the election is over, even as we tell you how much we're here to help you. And in the Hispanic community, you get some white redneck from South Georgia that the GOP hires to do outreach into the Hispanic community and he shows up at the local Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and says, hola, mi amigos, want to go to Taco Bell? Horrible. What the Republicans, though, have finally figured out with the Hispanic community is what the Democrats have forgotten. And this is the most uh, amazing. Democrats used to be really good talking to Hispanic voters. And you know why? For the same reason Republicans have gotten good at talking to Hispanic voters. Republicans used to view Hispanic voters as a class, a racial, ethnic class of voter. It must win in November. And so it treated them as such. 
And now Republicans are like, y'all are Americans. You want a job. You don't want your kids taught that girls can become boys. And you want freedom. Welcome to the GOP. And they've responded. Meanwhile, Democrats are like, uh, you people, y'all are Latinx. And uh, those Republicans, they want to treat you like uh, white Americans and white Americans are oppressors. And we know that you are victimized and, and we want to treat you as an identity political group, you Latinx voters. Would you like some Kleenex Latinx? As the Democrats, it's so funny. Republicans used to treat Hispanic voters as a racial ethnic class they had to win in November, and now Democrats are doing it. You know, Hispanic voters, you know what you call a Hispanic voter? An American. You know what else you call a Hispanic voter? A Cuban, a Venezuelan, a Nicaraguan, a Honduran, a Guatemalan, a Mexican, a Panamanian. A Colombian, Peruvian, Argentinian. They're not Hispanic. They're not Latino. They have a culture. They have a country from which their country immigrated, and now they want to be a freaking American, and you're trying to divide them up into some sort of ethnic class group. You know, the longer a Hispanic family stays in this country, the more likely they are to identify as white, not Hispanic. And they identify as American. And they got American concerns. And those concerns are the education of their kids. Why are my kids being taught they're oppressed when we, our country, our family fled an oppressive regime and came here? Why is the Democrats embracing socialism when we fled socialism? That's what the Hispanic voters are thinking. And we say Hispanic, we say Latino as a catch-all for them. But the, the Democrats have embraced this catch-all. And Republicans are now very mindful that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story to tell. And the individual unique story of the Hispanic voter is not a class story. It's a story of them and their family. And they want to be Americans. And they want to be integrated into American society. And the Democrats are, are saying that this, we got to be a salad bowl where nothing really integrates. We can't be the melting pot where everything integrates, where Taco Tuesday is shared by white guys, black guys, Hispanic guys. No, no, no. Everything's going to be a salad bowl. Don't you white people cook tacos. That's cultural appropriation. And Hispanic voters are like, I just want a job. The Democrats have lost that. And the polling is showing it, by the way. As the Democrats go woke, they're losing Hispanic voters because they're more worried about oppression and oppressors and oppressed than they are giving people jobs. And it's showing. And it's to the Republicans' benefit. You know, just dwell here on a point for a moment. Everybody's got a story. Everybody has a story. My dad's dad came over from Sweden, jumped shipped in Philadelphia, met my grandmother there. She was from the same town. They got married. They moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Had a boarding house on Peachtree Street. You know, my aunt, my dad's oldest sister, she was an adult when he was born. 
My dad's oldest sister, her first job is she worked at my radio station, WSB, during the Depression. Did the music on the weekend for people going to synagogue and church. They were in a boarding house on Peachtree Street. My grandfather installed the first elevator in the city of Atlanta. They moved south to Miami. My grandfather from Sweden hated the cold. They had a lot of boys and they had a lot of girls. And they as a family had a story to tell. My dad got old, went to college at Mississippi College, married my mom. When I was a kid, we moved to Dubai. We moved back from Dubai when I was in high school. My family has a story to tell. Your family has a story to tell. And it is unique to you and it's unique to your family. And the Democrats have decided our stories to tell are stories of our class. Well, we all have different stories to tell and our stories are not stories of class. Our stories are not stories of oppressor and oppressed, really. We individually, if particularly if you're black in this country and you grew up in a certain period, you've got a, a story of race and racism and segregation, but it's your family story. And not every family had the same experience. And the problem for the Democrats these days, what I find staggering because they used to be so good at it and critical theory has broken their brain is they used to be really good at recognizing everybody's got a story to tell and every story is unique to you and your family. And now they want your story to be a shared story, a corporate story, where if you're not white, it's the oppression that must be highlighted, not your advance and not your success and not you overcoming adversity. And as they've done that and they've categorized people by their race, by their ethnicity, by their sex, by their disability, they've lost the uniqueness of the person. And I think at a, at a larger level, at a philosophical level, that's why the Democrats are starting to see Hispanic voters and younger black voters move away from them because everybody's got a story to tell. But the Democrats don't want to hear that story. They want to impose on you a socially constructed story that they want you to tell. People want to tell their story, not the Democrats. Now, I want to tell you about Eden Pure. Eden Pure has an air purifier that is so good, I can use this thing when I fry in the kitchen. Because we don't have a, we don't have an exhaust fit in the kitchen. We, at some point, we're going to need to renovate. I want to build a house when I get successful. We'll worry about it then. But right now, if like for example, my wife doesn't like shellfish. I love to fry shrimp, make fried shrimp tacos, and so I get the um, Eden Pure Thunderstorm and I run into the kitchen while I'm frying, and it gets rid of the fry odor. It works that well. When I rent a car. Uh, I've had cars before, you know, that they've got uh, tobacco or nowadays you get the weed odor in them and you can run the Eden Pure Thunderstorm and it wipes it out and it's portable enough. You can run into the car and you can you run them in your house. You can run them in your RV. It gets rid of the pet odors, the tobacco odors. It gets rid of the mildew, the, the, the mold, gets rid of the musty odors. It actually gets rid of the pollen. All you got to do, though, is go to EdenPureDeals.com right now and get them. You can get three of them and save $200 and get all three of them for less than $200 and you get free shipping. You go to EdenPureDeals.com, click on my name, Eric Erickson, put the Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack in your cart. When you at checkout, you'll see a discount code. You put in ERIC3 as your discount code in that box. ERIC3, click apply, 
You'll see $200 go off. You'll see them for less than $200, and you'll get free shipping. It's EdenPureDeals.com. The checkout code is ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, and the number three. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. You know, they had the big walkout at um, Netflix. When we come back, I want to play you some of the audio from one of the organizers. It's deeply, deeply, deeply destructive. Right now, though, did you know you, you may have a hard time getting a turkey for Thanksgiving? Do you know why? Do you know why you would have a problem getting a turkey for Thanksgiving? You're thinking the supply chain is the problem. You are thinking it's the supplies. Here's Good Morning America. According to food analyst editor Phil Limpert, this turkey day you may be paying more, and a variety of issues from climate change to the pandemic may be partly to blame. Climate change? Climate change? They're blaming everything on climate. Your turkey prices are going up and you're having a harder time finding them because of climate change. Uh, pay no attention to the supply chain. My good, never let a crisis go to waste. The environmentalists discredit themselves when they blame climate change on your lack of turkeys this year, which is, that's what they're doing. Climate change. It's to blame for, are you constipated? It's climate change. That That's what's caused. Do you have hemorrhoids? It's climate change. That's the, are you going bald? You know that too. That's climate change. It's all climate. You can't take these people seriously.